Welcome to the Crossview Church Message of the Week. We hope you enjoy the message this morning. For more information, visit us at mycrossview.com. Well, we're thankful <laughs> whether you're here in person or online. It's good to be together again. And as we continue in our, uh, our, our King David series, I'm thankful for this. It's, I'm also looking, I love the holiday season. I, I hope you do as well. I know we're close to Thanksgiving and hope you come to help decorate the church next week. It's like the only way that I can listen to Christmas music before Thanksgiving. We're going to put that on. It's going to be great. Uh, but we're, we're almost done with our King David series this week and, uh, and the next week as well. I was wrong. I said last, last week, I, thought, I think I said we were in week eight, but last week was week nine. This is week 10. So we've been in uh, King David for 10 weeks together, which is really great. Uh, so, but this morning what I'd like to do, we've kind of been, as we've been looking at the life of David, we've kind of been going uh, chronologically, kind of, at, we've been following him kind of from his beginning all the way to uh, as he's been king and, and on into that. But what I'd like to do today is jump backward in the story a little bit. I was so moved by this story this past week, uh, and uh, it, it's, a, it's a powerful story to help us understand, and I, th- I hope encourage us and think about how is it that we approach the presence of God in our daily lives. And this story is so powerful, but it's also one that I think a lot of us have a difficult time understanding because it doesn't quite make sense to us. So we're going to be looking at 2 Samuel chapter 6. So if you have your Bibles with you or a device, feel free to pull it up. You'll see that here on the screen as well. But we're going to look at 2 Samuel chapter 6. And we find in this chapter the juxtaposition of two different approaches to the presence of God. One from a man named Yuza and the other from King David. So let's read the, we're going to read a good chunk of this, but we're going to read the first seven verses today. You will probably recognize this story, uh, even though it's a bit earlier on in the story of King David's life. the, The scripture reads like this. Then David again gathered all the elite troops of Israel, 30,000 in all, and he led them to Bala of Judah to bring back the Ark of God, or the Ark of the Covenant, which bears the name of the Lord of Heaven's armies, who is enthroned between the cherubim. They placed the Ark of God on a new cart and brought it from Abinadab's house, which was on a hill. Yuza and Ahio, Abinadab's sons, were guiding the cart that carried the Ark of God. Ahio walked in front of the ark. David and all the people of Israel were celebrating before the Lord, singing songs and playing all kinds of musical instruments, lyres, harps, tambourines, cassonets, and cymbals. But when they arrived at the threshing floor of Nacon, the oxen stumbled, and Yuza reached out his hand and steadied the ark of God. Then the Lord's anger was aroused against Yuza, and God struck him dead because of this. So Yuza died right there beside the ark of God. So this is a story that we might be familiar with and one which you always leave with questions like, what? What happened there, God? Why did, why did Yuza die? It seems like it would be a, 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 a kind gesture, a nice gesture, if the ark is going to fall off the cart to put your hand out and stop it. So we're going to look at this a little bit. So I mentioned last week that the ark of God or the ark of, of the covenant was a very important item for the people of God. And uh, especially uh, David and his kingdom. Early in the story, we're uh, earlier in the story, back in 1 Samuel, before we get here, the Ark of the Covenant had been captured by the Philistines. 
They had it for quite some time. And I'm not going to go into all of that. There's, you go and read that story. There's quite a bit to it. But eventually, the Philistines decide to give the Ark of the Covenant back. And so that's what they did. But it sat for a long time, decades, they think 20 to 30 years, at the house of Abinadab. So just try to picture what that's like. That you've got the Ark of the Covenant just chilling at your house. <laughs> Sitting on your coffee table. <laughs> right? So by now, David is a king, and, and uh, he has just established his rule in Jerusalem. He, and he has decided that he wants the Ark of the Covenant, the representation of God's presence, back in the new capital city, signaling that Jerusalem was not only the place from which David ruled, but also was the place where God and his presence is central. Central in worship and central in the life of the community. For David, it's not enough just to have his throne there in Jerusalem. It must also be the place where God is celebrated, where God is worshipped. And for that, we need the Ark of the Covenant as our focus of worship, and it needs to be back at the capital. Let's go get the Ark. (laughs) So let's talk for a moment, just because I think it's really important that we understand all of this. That the Ark of the Covenant was a rectangular box, Uh, not quite four feet in height and and a little over two feet in depth and uh, two feet wide. It was constructed of wood and it was plated with gold. Its lid was solid gold and the lid uh, was called the mercy seat and it had two angel-like figures on the top of it uh, that framed the space in the middle, which was called the mercy seat and which is from, uh, the mercy seat was where God's word was honored. The ark contained three items the tablets of stone that Moses had delivered to the people from Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments, a jar of manna from the wilderness years of wandering, and Aaron's rod that had budded. So these objects served, not only only represented as the the presence of God, but these objects in the Ark of the Covenant uh, uh, served as evidence that God had worked among them. Back in their history and now, that he had, he had uh, commanded them, the tablets, that he had provided for them, the manna, and that he had saved them, the budding rod. So the Ark of the Covenant provided uh, a center, uh, giving the people a historical focus to the revealed character of God whom they worship, that God was active in our past and he is active now. It is God's presence and we know that he will act as we go forward. That's pretty significant, right? <laughs> pretty amazing. The ark didn't have magical properties uh, and uh, when people treated it like that, the prophets would steer them clear of that thought process. One commentator I read this week wrote this. They believed that God worked in their lives and did things, that he wasn't a blurred glow of sentiment, that God wasn't an abstract concept, God wasn't a remote legislator passing laws, that God wasn't a bearded judge austere and exacting, that God was was personal in their history as he is personal in our history, creating and directing and saving and blessing God entered the affairs of men and women, and when he did, he judged and saved and called to account and blessed. Most of all, he loved. He entered into covenants with his people, giving them the dignity of sharing in his work and living by faith and in love, and all, the ark kept all of this in front of them. Pretty incredible when you think about what this meant 
and what it reminded the people of. It was a reminder of God's powerful, active presence in history and in their presence and real action in, their word, in the word and in their hearts. And I think maybe the closest thing that we have to this idea are our sacraments. Real, ordinary material reminders of the work that God has done, is doing, and will do. This is what David went to go get. This is what he said, it's really important that we have this in our capital city. This is the thing that represented God's powerful history of action and, uh, in history and in the present. And it's just chilling on the edge of our territory on the coffee table of a Benedict. <laughs> so with all this in mind, knowing what the ark is and what it represents, we come to the point in the story where David and 30,000 soldiers, it's quite a show of power and strength, which is really fun. We'll talk about this as we get through. I actually think we see a pretty significant transition in this just or transformation even in just this one chapter of David's perspective on the presence of God. So David and 30,000 soldiers, they go to get the ark. What they do, where we hear that they put the ark on a cart, and they head toward Jerusalem. And Abinadab's two sons are the the ones in charge of guiding the cart. We see in the, between the two sons and David two very different approaches to the Ark of the Covenant. And you can read that as God's presence. Yuza and Ahio, they might, you might picture them as solemn, measured, in control of what's happening, in charge. They might be said to be responsible, even efficient. And they made the decision to ignore God's rules for moving the Ark because they knew what was best. The Mosaic tradition gave clear instructions on how to handle the ark or how to handle the presence of God. It wasn't to be touched by human hands. It was supposed to be carried by the Levites, those pastors set aside to care for the presence of God and help people interact with God. They were consecrated and set aside. It was supposed to be carried, the Levites were supposed to carry the ark using poles, walking it from place to place. Not as efficient as using the new technology of a cart with wheels. Which this was new technology at that point. Putting it on a cart with wheels. Pastor Holly had this hilarious kind of way to put it. as We were talking about it this last week. She said it's like just putting it in the U-Haul and driving it down the street. <laughs> one Ohio in front and one on the side, Yuza. Uh, they were in control. They knew what was best. Listen, everyone. You listen uh, and you listen to presence of the Most High God will tell you what to do. Now, I'm being facetious here to make a point. Many commentators I read this last week talked about the fact that there seemed to be significant disregard on the part of Abinadab and his two sons in the process of taking care of the presence of God. So much so that when the oxen tripped, Yuza, maybe even with good intentions, reached out to touch the ark, thinking or probably believing nothing's going to happen. One author I read this week wrote this, We enter church or school to learn about God, to be trained in knowledge and obedience and prayer. And, what, and we get what we came for, uh, truth that centers, words that command and comfort, Rituals that stabilize, work that has purpose, and a community of relationships that strengthen, 
forgiveness that frees. We find God. We change our ways. We repent. We believe and we follow. We rearrange our circumstances. We reestablish our routines around what now gives meaning and hope. We take on responsibilities and the wonderful new world of worship and work. We advance in the ranks, the ranks and before we know it, we're telling others what to do and how to do it. And then we cross a line. We get bossy. We take over God's work for him and from him. We take charge, making sure that others live rightly and well. Over the years, the basics with which we began, the elements of reverence and awe, the spirit of love and faith erode and shrivel. Finally, there's nothing left. We're dead to God. Yuza is a warning. If we think and act as he did, we'll be dead in our spirits, dead to the alive presence of God. (laughs) Think about what it was like for them in those times. For 30 years or so, the Ark of the Covenant just sat in the room. And we don't know, maybe they organized a process of people in their village coming to, to see the presence of God or to be with them. But over time, what likely happened was they lost their sense of awe and wonder at the presence of God. They got so used to it, they thought they knew what was going on. They thought they knew God. God wasn't wonderful and terrible for them anymore. (laughs) Nothing's going to happen. Don't worry. Let me just put my hand on the ark. Another author I wrote, said this, in the, or I read, said this, in the imaginative context, we can guess that Yuza's reflective act of reaching out to steady the ark as the oxen stumbled wasn't, a, wasn't the mistake of a moment. It was a piece of his lifelong obsession with managing the ark. Managing the presence of God. So here is the question as we look at the first half of this chapter. What is your approach to the presence of God? What is it like for you on a daily basis when you come into the presence of God? <laughs> the, the, the presence of the one God, the creator and sustainer of all things. Is it just normative? Do you just expect nothing to happen? <laughs> oh, that we would never lose our sense of awe and wonder at who God is and what God has done and can do. Oh, that we would never lose our sense of his power and his might and his love, but we do. (laughs) Forgive me, God, for always making you too much like me. All of that is just the first half of this chapter. And like is the case so much in Scripture, this chapter ends with a model of hope and encouragement to a different way of life for you and me. And that model comes in the person of David. Because in David, we see the opposite of Yuza. So here are things we, a few things we know about David. We've talked about these a lot, but especially early on in his life, he lives loud, right? <laughs> uh, even from a, a young age, he's a risk taker. He's lived dangerously, taking on lions and bears and, and taunting a giant and the, the current king who was trying to kill him. He was courageous and sometimes a foolish warrior who had the blessing of God and won many victories. David wasn't a tame person, and he wasn't tame with God either. We know that from many of his psalms that he wrote. David knew the presence of God from a young age, and he knew that God wasn't tame 
(laughs) but powerful and wonderful. David was uh, almost always reliant on God even for survival. He just had a different perspective on God. Another commentator wrote this, God was Savior, God was his Savior, his commander, his shepherd, and his rock. In the conditions of his life, David learned to live openly, daringly, trustingly, and exultingly before God. I love that on some level, David wasn't careful with God, unlike Ahio and Yuza. We see a stark difference between David's approach and Yuza's, even from the beginning of the chapter. In the first few verses, it said, Ahio walked in front of the ark, and David and all the people of Israel were celebrating before the Lord. Did you catch that earlier? Now, it looks different now. I mean, it's it's pretty significant, the difference we see. They're celebrating before the Lord, singing songs and playing all kinds of musical instruments, lyres and harps and tambourines, castanets and cymbals. David had this wonderful sense of the awe of God, and yet I still think it gets better for him as this chapter goes. He has this wonderful sense of awe, which is amazing because he's the king, right? He's the one who is supposed to be solemn and full of having a sense of decorum and acting in a very royal way, giving an example to the people, right? (laughs) He's supposed to be regal and measured and solemn, but that's not what David did. And after Yuza's death, we get this fascinating scripture or this fascinating verse or set of verses where David gets a little upset with God here. Here's, we read this. David was angry because of the Lord, because the Lord's anger had burst out against Yuza. He named the place Perez Yuza, which, which means to burst out against Yuza, as it is still called to this day. David was now afraid of the Lord, and, and he asked, how can I ever bring the, the ark of the Lord back into my care? Now, what I love about this is because while David has an opposite reaction uh, than that of Yuza, David still has to go through his own process of remembering how wonderful and great God is. We see a, tra- a transformation here. At first, David comes in all the royal power he can, right? 30,000 soldiers, he's fine with them putting it on the, on the cart to take to Jerusalem. They're singing And I wonder if at first this was kind of a mix of worship and a political solidification of who he was, right? Here comes the king in all of his power and glory. And he, on some level, was treating God's presence maybe the same way that Yuza was, using God for his own purposes. (laughs) And then Yuza dies, and David gets upset because God interrupted his royal parade. (laughs) But it gave David pause. It gave David pause to remember exactly who God was. And so he decided not to move the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem for three months. He left it at the house of another guy, but this time it was a Levite, one who was supposed to help take care of the presence of God. Obed-Edom is his name. And what was fascinating is the scripture tells us that as the Ark was at the house of the Levite and being cared for correctly, God's presence blessed this Levite and his family. And David recognized that and and remembered who God was and says, okay, we have to get the Ark to Jerusalem. So this time, he gets the band together. Not the army, he gets the musicians. And he calls up the Levites. And this time, they do this thing right. In 2 Samuel 6, 12 through 15, it says this. So David went there and brought the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with great celebration. 
after the men who were carrying the ark of the Lord had gone six steps. Did you notice that? The men who were carrying the ark of the Lord. He's got the Levites. They're carrying it now with poles. They're doing it the right way. Let's not use the cart, (laughs) right? After the men who were carrying the ark of the Lord, six steps, David sacrificed the bull and fattened the calf. And David danced before the Lord with all his might, wearing not his royal robes of power, but priestly garments. So David and all the people of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts of joy, blowing and the blowing of ram's horns. Wow, what a change and what a great, incredible reminder of who God is and how to treat the presence of God. I think part of what David experienced all his life was, as one author put it, access to life. God-given life that exceeded his capacity to measure or control, and so he danced. (laughs) I love David's relationship with God. It's authentic, it's real, it's good, it's bad, it's back and forth, you know, like a lot of our relationships. And I love the idea that we can have a relationship with God where our access to God's life exceeds our, our, exceeds our capacity to measure or control. That's compelling. But we like control, don't we? And do you try to control that? your relationship with God, or try to control what God can and will do in your life? Will I be like Yuza, so familiar with God that I completely disregard who God is, what God is like, what he might call me to do? You can't ask me to do that, God. It's impossible. (laughs) Will we be like Yuza, or will we be more like David, who is so excited at the end of this chapter, just for the presence of God, to be in awe and reverence, not knowing what will happen, but he puts on humble robes and he dances. That type of excitement, I was trying to connect and think what was that like for me, maybe in my life, that type of excitement. Christina's downstairs, so she, maybe she'll hear this in the second, second service, but uh, uh, I remember that type of excitement years earlier when Christine and I were, were just starting to date. We were in college, and we were first getting to know each other, and uh, there was those times where I just couldn't simply wait just to get a glimpse of her. Do you ever remember maybe a relationship like that? I'd get out of class, and before, I'd maybe walk to my next thing. But then I started dating Christina, and I'd get out of class, and I'd be like, see you later, guys. Run! I would run to where she was. I couldn't wait to see her. <laughs> I think this is that, kind of, that kind of excitement and love and awe is, is, is what David is experiencing. He couldn't help himself. If David at this point had been merely carrying out religious duties or maybe royal duties, he may have been, uh, you know, he may have been more willing to walk in solemn procession before the ark with dignity. But this was no duty. He was worshiping and responding to the living presence of God. He was open to the life of God flowing all around him and through him. The God whose ways intersected history and, and, and defined by the ark. They remembered his salvation, his revelation, and his blessing. So are there areas of your life where you're closed off to God or trying to control God? Where you're trying to manage God? One of the early church fathers wrote this. His name was Irenaeus. I love it. He said, the glory of God is a human fully alive. 
we become fully alive in and through the presence of God. Amen? And I love it because the whole story ends in this one chapter with David's wife, Michael, completely embarrassed by what David's doing. (laughs) And she lets him know. Michael is the, the daughter of Saul, King Saul before David. So maybe she grew up being used to what it meant to be a king, seeing her dad in all the the royal duty, the pomp and circumstance of it. And she has these expectations of David, and she's upset. Perhaps Michael would have been comfortable walking alongside the ark with Yuza. But she mocked David, dancing before the ark. David, you shouldn't do that. (laughs) And David didn't care. He knew that the glory of God Uh, was a human fully alive. Amen. And he said, I'll be even more undignified than this when it comes to how I interact with the presence of God. Wow. (laughs) Worship team, would you come on back up? The question for you and I through this story, this chapter, is as we think about what God has done in our life, in our history, currently now, and what he will do, Will we be more like Yuza? Are we like Yuza, trying to manage what God does in a safe way? Or are we coming into the presence of God in awe and wonder, even beyond our ability to, to control or, or, or capture that, and worshiping God with all that we are? We just sang a wonderful song about our audience of one. That's exactly what David was doing. And the scripture and God calls you and I to do the same. Would you stand? Let me pray and we'll sing together.